there, and welcome back to Nature Boost. I'm Jill Pritchard with the Missouri Department of Conservation. The Western Black Rat Snake. It's one of Missouri's most common snakes. It's found in virtually every corner of the state. Its dark color can give it kind of a menacing appearance, but it's non-venomous, it's harmless to humans, and it can be beneficial to have on your property. As we've discussed in past Nature Boost episodes, snakes are one of the most common phobias, affecting about 10% of the world's population. I did not even realize that it was that prevalent. But I have to know, is there a name for an irrational fear of two-headed snakes? I recently traveled down to MDC's Cape Girardeau Nature Center, where a two-headed rat snake has been attracting visitors since it arrived at the center almost 20 years ago. Naturalist Alex Holmes was generous enough to give me all of the details. Alex, we are recording this at the end of August, which we all know is basically the start of Halloween season. So I appreciate you meeting with me today to talk about a really cool member you have here down at the Cape Girardeau Nature Center, your two-headed, it's a Western black rat snake. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Some people might know them as pilot snakes, black snakes, chicken snakes. There's a million different names, but Western black rat snake is totally fine. Chicken snake? They have a habit of showing up in chicken coops from time to time. They are big egg eaters, among other things. They eat an enormous amount of rodents, but they also will borrow an egg or two. So this is... (laughs) This has got witchy vibes all over it. I mean, I I feel like if I look at this snake, it's going to start talking and then tell me how I die. You know, it's kind of got that like American horror story vibe to it. And I'm sure you get quite the reaction from the public here down in Cape Girardeau. Yeah, I mean, they've always been an enormous way to start a conversation about reptiles. And so with that unique situation that they have being conjoined at the neck, It gets people's attention, and then we get to say, but you know what? Having these snakes around as creepy crawly as they seem, the one-headed versions are great to have in your yard. They do us an enormous amount of good. So it's a great conversation starter for us as teachers here at the Nature Center. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into the benefits of having snakes um, around, because I know there you must deal with a lot of people that's like their biggest fear and oh, you know, and especially another part of my job, um, I'm not sure if many podcast listeners know is I also help manage MDC social media. And that's one of the most common comments that we get from the public anytime we post anything snake related is oh, burn it with fire. But no, 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 snakes are, are definitely beneficial to have around. But before we get into that, I want to know a little bit about this two-headed snake's backstory. How was it discovered? So there was a boy in Delta, Missouri, which is um, kind of the top of the boot heel, and they brought this snake in that they found in their backyard with um, with two heads, and it was a, a new hatchling. They brought it in around this time of year. It was late September, and typically we see reptiles hatching late August. September is is about the time they're normally born. So it was a young of the year, and um, brought it in and dropped it off, and it's been here ever since. That was not long after this nature center opened, uh, now about se- 17 years ago. Oh my gosh. So, okay, so we know that two-headed snakes, reptiles uh, of anything in the wild, they really don't um, survive that long. But as far as just a normal one-headed snake, what's the lifespan of this type of rat snake? 
it depends. In the wild would be very different from captivity. I don't know in the wild, but I would say five to 10 years is probably typical for most of them. Um, in captivity, 20 to 30 is not out of the question. With, with no predators and very little disease and all of that, um, they tend to live longer. So maybe 30 years. Gosh, that's insane. That's, a, that's, 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 yeah, it's a, it's a really long time. So you are referring to this snake as a she. So did you, and I know I've, I've, I actually did an episode about a year or so ago with um, Jeff Brigler, our MDC, our state herpetologist. From what I remember, he made it seem like it was pretty difficult to determine the gender of a snake just, um, and it was something, if you want to know for sure, it's something you kind of have to internally figure out. So yes. tell us about that. So unlike mammals, reptiles, all the reproductive organs are on the inside. So looking at them from the outside, they all have a cloaca, which is a, a shared duct for, for excretion and reproduction. And so within that cloaca, that's where they would either have their male reproductive parts or not. They will usually insert a probe um, and feel for those things or squeeze in a way that, that they can reveal the gender that way. So does this, have you named this snake? Uh, we aren't in the habit of naming snakes here at the Cape Nature Center since we treat them as animal ambassadors. We colloquially call them the twins. Uh, so they're the twins. <laughs> that, that, that's good enough. I like that. Okay. All right. So now I'm, I'm getting into some more fun questions and I'm sure questions you commonly get um, with this snake. How do the heads interact with each other? Is Do they fight? Is one more dominant? Tell, tell us more about that. So, um, yes, they do interact with one another. They are separate individuals um, who, you know, are, they're individual for about four inches and then they, they share the rest. Um, they do fight. Uh, we have to be very careful when we feed them. They don't, fight's probably not the right word, but they, snakes don't see very well. And so most of the way they interact with the world is through smells. So if one of the sisters has a little bit of mouse residue on her lips, the other one smells that, and we've had instances where they will lock up, and they're difficult to unlock. So we put a drinking cup on one head at a time. We feed them. We let the the mouse get past their junction, so we don't have any train wrecks on the inside, you know, because their esophagus meets at a specific spot. And then we um, take turns. We think it's probably good for their mental well-being. They probably don't have to, but we alternate feeding them one side to the other and they each get a chance to you know if you're a snake I imagine eating is probably the highlight of your life so we give them an opportunity to to try uh, eating each we feed them they usually eat between five and ten small mice um, per feeding and we have to feed them small mice because where they conjoin there's a, a spinal deformity and it seems to affect the, you know they're about five feet long at this point and they would be easily capable of eating full-size mice, if not rats. And we feed them young mice because they have a hard time getting it past that spinal deformity. So we feed them multiple little mice instead of one big. Um, but they do fight over their food occasionally. Um, and they seem to have a difficult time uh, agreeing which way to go. Um, so they, you know, they, they will... They have a hard time moving around and deciding because they're individuals. See, and that was going to be my next question is how does, how does she, they, is it one, is it two? It's how do they 
slither and and move you know is is it usually do you find that usually it's one who makes the decision more than the other is it always the same one that kind of decides where they move it's it seems to be there's one head which seems a little bit less intellectual than the other it seems like there's there's one that seems to be slightly more alert and the other one is a little bit less so so the one that's more alert um usually is kind of it's almost like one is going in the direction of the body and the other one's kind of off to the side rather than a fork moving forward, if that makes sense. So. It, it, it does. Okay, so one's just kind of along for the ride. More or less, yeah. One seems, the, the one, I believe it's the left one, seems to have a little bit more uh, control. Does the right one, when you feed that one, does it seem to have other issues? Yeah, the, the jaw's a little bit malformed on that one as well, and so... It, it just seems a little less aware than the other one. So it seems one is probably um, a little more cognitively with it. Okay. All right. So um, a few years ago, I think this was in 2019. This might, might have been before the pandemic. I can't remember. But you, uh, you guys celebrated like a 16th birthday party for, for the snake. Tell, tell, us, uh, tell us about that. Well, we, uh, you know, everyone needs a sweet 16 party. And so we decided why not our, um, our probably our most popular mascot here in Cape Girardeau. So uh, we threw a party. We had two-headed snake-related crafts. We had um, cupcakes with two-headed snake gummies on top. Um, and it was a lot of fun. I, I, I think we had three or four hundred people show up that day to celebrate with us. So when I'm out and about, when people find out that I work at the Cape Nature Center, it's the first question, almost always. Do you guys still have that two-headed snake? Everyone asks. So it's pretty well known down here in Cape Girardeau then. Absolutely. I, In fact, I just did two um, print interviews, one in England and one in France. So... Um, internationally famous at this point man well the twins they're uh they're going global. global that is insane would you say the black rat snake is probably one of the most common snakes in missouri that that you may encounter yeah i don't know about actual numbers but they're fairly visible um we see them around farms a lot they're a pretty common snake to see in the woodlands so when you're out for a hike it's not unusual to see them um, but their, you know, their desire to hang out around farms looking for mice and occasionally chicken, eggs and things. But probably one of the more common ones that people interact with for certain. And again, um, snakes, a, a pretty big phobia. Um, I actually looked up what that phobia was called and I tried to memorize it but now I can't do you happen to know the snake phobia I don't it starts with an O I'm sure it, it does it starts with an O yeah o um Ophophobia. Oph something yeah oh anyway you can look it up and then yeah it's 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 kind of actually fun to say people they instantly see a snake they get freaked out they think the snake is going to bite them um again i feel like this is another uh reminder for people the venomous versus poisonous debate i'll let you take over and and dispel that yeah so we've you know it's common for us to frequently hear people call a snake poisonous and while that's they mean the right thing, but we use the word venomous to describe an animal that bites or stings and injects a venom, a poison, into you. So a bee is venomous, a spider is venomous, and our snakes are venomous. Poisonous is a word that we use to describe animals 
who, if we were to eat them, would become ill. So certain frogs and toads, things like that, they're poisonous. Mm -hmm. So um, snakes are venomous because they bite and inject. Um, rat snakes are neither of those things, so you would not get sick eating a rat snake if you so choose. Um, but you would also, uh, a bite from a rat snake is um, probably not fun, but not a life-threatening emergency in any way. Well, and another thing, too, that's important to remind people is that snakes are more afraid of us than we are afraid of them. They don't want to be around humans. You know, they, they, they're smaller than us. Um, and a lot of times whenever people get bitten by a snake, whether it is venomous or non-venomous, they're, they're, they're too close to it. And they're usually trying to touch it or poke it. And yeah, they're in its space. Yeah. Vast majority of snake bites happen when, um, when people are, are either trying to kill the snake or harass it in some way. Um, as you pointed out, you know, we're 100, 200 pound humans and they're a couple pounds. And they, with all of their defenses, they still recognize that that's probably a losing battle. And so they they feel the vibrations of our footsteps um, and they go the other way more often than not. A lot of the tall tales that you hear about snakes chasing after people and this, that and the other they're they're mostly just tall tales um every experience that i've ever had with a snake in the wild sometimes they will stand their ground um, because they might feel backed into a corner or something but um and they might i've had one make a, a few foot towards me to give me the message that i'm i'm willing to fight if we have to but ultimately all they want to do is turn around and go the other way um a snake has no desire to bite you um so, so uh if anybody sees a snake or a, a, a black rat snake around their house, that's actually a, a good thing to, to have around. They could, let's discuss some of the benefits of, of having a snake on your property. Yeah, frequently I meet people um, when I do snake programs and I might have all kinds of different snakes around. And you'll hear, um, you know, folks from an older generation say, I never kill black rat snakes. They're the ones that I leave. You know, dad would always kill this, that, but he never would let us kill rat snakes. And while they're definitely beneficial, so are all snakes. But what they're doing is they're really taking care of rodent populations. And, and rat snakes seem relatively comfortable around people. So our farms and our houses, especially if you have property and timber around, you, you are probably um, overburdened with, with rodents around your property, especially if you're keeping animal feed, pet feed, old vehicles and sheds on your property. These are all things that really attract rodents. And when we've got rodents, we've got rat snakes looking for them. And our snake eats three mice a week. Um, and that's probably about what they would eat in the wild um, nine months of the year. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of mice. Um, so, you know, we feed three a week to our larger rat snake. And you're talking about a huge benefit. One of our naturalists here keeps chickens, and she talks about, you know, paying the rat snake fee because all they does eat some of her eggs um, and maybe an occasional chick or two. But she has very little problem with mice getting into her chicken coop, um, who can also damage the baby chickens as well. So it's about finding that balance because um, they deserve to be there just as much as we do. We'll have more with Alex and the twins right after the break. 
This is Discover Nature Notes with the Missouri Department of Conservation. There are many myths about snakes, old ones brought over from European immigrants, and new ones started by settlers. One myth reported that certain snakes stole milk from cows. The truth was that the snakes were there to eat mice. These milk snakes are actually a kind of colorful king snake. Some people claim that snakes run in pairs. This is another myth. Snakes do get together briefly in the spring to mate, but since snakes are carnivores and compete for food, such as mice, frogs, and fish, they tend to be loners. Claims that snakes swallow their young when threatened or that snakes cannot bite underwater are also false. A common misconception is that snakes are slimy. While they may appear wet and slimy like fish, in fact, snake skin is smooth and dry. Discover more by signing up today at discovernaturenotes.com. The Missouri Department of Conservation, serving nature and you. Welcome back to Nature Boost, where we're talking with naturalist Alex Holmes about the unique two-headed snake at the Cape Girardeau Nature Center, something that's extremely rare to encounter in the wild. Tell me why it would be hard for any two-headed animal to survive in the wild. Yeah, so the frequency, I've not found a definite number, but in human beings, conjoining probably happens in roughly one in a hundred thousand births. And it's probably a similar number um, in reptiles. And so that's pretty often. You would expect to see more of them, but they, they're easy targets um, because our twins have a difficult time moving around, um, difficult time feeding. They're much more likely to be eaten by a hawk or a skunk or a raccoon or any other predator that might be after them. So the fact that that our twins were picked up and put into captivity after being, you know, alive for probably a matter of weeks is probably the only reason that they are still alive. Um, they'd be an easy target, not being able to agree on which way to go when running away from predators matters. And um, so it's why you don't see it ever in a very rarely in adult animals in the wild. And it kind of reminds me of um, whenever people submit pictures of uh, albino deer or um, there's another there's another term for that. Uh, leucism. Yes. Yeah, leucism is a not a complete lack of pigmentation, but a lack of dark pigmentation typically. Mm-hmm. They're very cool to look at, but again, that makes them a big target for predation because they stand out so well. Yeah, absolutely. If you're a, a you know, a a fawn and you're supposed to look like dappled sunlight with your spots and you're bright white, that coyote is going to be just that more likely to find you. Later, Alex allowed me to see how he and staff feed the twins. As he mentioned, they put a cup over one head as they offer the other a small mouse. And then once that head finishes eating, they'll put a cup over it and they'll feed the other head. Essentially, the two halves of their jaw work independently as a kind of like a conveyor belt to push the food down their throat. And that's that. So we give them a little bit of time to let that mouse go past the junction um, so that we don't have a... And the junction where the two heads meet, that's what you're... exactly. So if, you know, we don't want one mouse and another mouse to hit it at the same time because we worry that, that they might get stuck at least for a while. So we give them time to swallow it past that. And once it looks like it's going under it right now, and then we'll try the other side. Now, I, I saw that the other head kind of popped out of the cup. Mm-hmm. Do they have a tendency to want to take the 
mouse from the other's mouth if they are not all the way in the cup? Or? Yeah, I, I don't know if they're even intentionally stealing it so much as their snakes see, see very poorly. And so they're smelling mouse. They're smelling mouse, and that's that trigger for them to, um, to, get, to get excited about eating. Right now, they're sticking their tongues in and out, both of them trying to locate another one. They know that they usually get fed more than one at a time, so they've got that ready. So we'll try to feed the other side and see what we get. Okay. Now that they're fired up. What's interesting, snakes can, can swallow big meals. They have a, almost like a snorkel built into the bottom of their mouth. You know, if we were, if you were to imagine trying to eat an entire cantaloupe at one time, which is about what they're doing, yeah. you would have a hard time breathing while you do that. So they actually have a tube that comes out um, from their lungs but instead of being like ours being back in the back of our mouths theirs is actually on like the floor of their mouth so they're able to to breathe as they're swallowing those big meals it doesn't interfere the same way that it would for us so oh, i did not know that another way that they've uh, evolved and adapted to absolutely yeah. yep well that was really cool i'm glad that we got to see them both feed oh the tube is the same place the tongue actually comes out of. Oh, is it? So okay. It's, it's like a little sheath. And when, you know, when they're sticking their tongue out, smelling, I've, you know, I've been calling it smelling. They stick their tongue out and snakes' tongues are forked because it's just like our binocular vision. They sort of have binocular smell. So they stick their tongue out and if the food smell is more on the right, they can sense that. They take their tongue in and they rub it on essentially scent glands on the roof of their mouth. They're tasting whatever odor is in the air, pulling it into their mouth, and then depositing those little molecules of smell onto an organ on the top of their mouth. And that's actually how they find their way around. Snakes don't really hear the way that we think of hearing. They don't have external ears. So any sounds that they get are very muffled. What they're really doing is feeling the vibration, the vibration. in the ground. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, if I were holding the snake and talking, I'm sure they can feel that. But, you know, shouting at a snake or something very well may not be something that they can hear, or at least not well. So it's all about smell. It's all about um, vibration for snakes. They don't feel it. Feel it. Feel the vibrations. Do you remember that? I do. Marky I, Mark. <laughs> I do remember that. Good vibrations. Um, okay, I have one last question to ask you yes. about this snake. Do you ever like hold it up and pretend that you're Britney Spears at the VMAs? Not to this point, though. You've given me a great idea. Halloween's coming up. You know, no, not never too early to plan. <laughs> this has been awesome. Thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate all the information. Thanks for coming to visit and bringing everybody along with you. If you're in the southeast region of Missouri or you happen to be traveling through, check out the Cape Girardeau Nature Center. The staff is so friendly and welcoming. They have a variety of fun and free programs that you can participate in. And you can also say hi to the twins while you're there. Another big thanks to naturalist Alex Holmes for letting me visit. And remember, if you have any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear about on Nature Boost, let us know. You can submit suggestions on our website at missouriconservation.org slash natureboost. I'm Jill Pritchard with the Missouri Department of Conservation, urging you to get your daily dose of the outdoors.